Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. Hello and welcome to NDA. My name is Dave Wiskus. This is the show where I talk creator economy stuff with creator economy people, I suppose. Today, joined by Anita Sarkeesian. Hello, Anita. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? I cannot wait to find the things we disagree on. The spirit of the show is we we want to not just sit around talking about, oh, you're so right. I want to I want to get into the interesting stuff. And you have, I think, an incredibly interesting background. The ways in which you've been a creator, the things that you have made, the story of it all, I find fascinating in the context of where things are. How do you see all of that? Where, how do you think of yourself as being a creator? <laughs> All right. Just massive, huge question to start out with. You know, a light getting to know you moment. Yeah. Yeah. This was interesting when you asked me to do this because I'm like, I'm not really a creator anymore, even though I kind of want to be. And so oh, bullshit. Yes, you are. <laughs> I know. As I'm about to release the show. You've also got the podcast. Yes, that is true. You know, sometimes when you do something for so long, it stops being real and just a thing that you do, you know, <laughs> like they're just like, yeah, that's the podcast. I think that my relationship to all of this is probably very different to people who are like actively creating right now, especially like YouTube internet creators, right? So when I first started, you know, YouTube was still very young. There was not really that many people doing kind of video essay, cultural criticism work online. There were, and I was influenced by some of the early folks, but it wasn't anything like it is now. And so I, I think it's really interesting to look back and be like, wow, I was really one of the like pioneers of this space. <laughs> you know, like it's hard to think of yourself in that way. But really, I remember looking at the ways in which I was being harassed for the work I was doing, right? So I launched a series called Tropes versus Women in Video Games to look at the way women are represented in video games and video game history. And this was, you know, like several years after I started making YouTube videos and my program Feminist Frequency. And the harassment that I received was really baked in on YouTube, right? That there were tons of people making reactionary, hate-filled, like really regressive videos attacking me. And there were so few that were supportive. There just wasn't, I don't know, I don't want to say a market, but there, there wasn't a lot of creators who are doing these really deep dives into cultural context, into leftist politics. And over the years, we've seen a, a huge rise in that. Like, I think a lot of what your platform does is like find those people <laughs> and say, hey, like we got a home for you. So at the time, it felt a little lonely, you know, like I felt a little out there doing this thing on my own. And it's been exciting to see the shift and the growth in the creator space and the leftist space on YouTube and on different streaming platforms. It's funny because it's not it's never intentional from our side, the creators that we work with. And I was introduced to you through Lindsay Ellis, who I think fits into that camp. And we have a ton of creators who sort of live in that space. And, and there's plenty of grumpy emails or Reddit comments we've seen about how Nebula is like a, a leftist, whatever. It's never intentional. We gravitate towards science and nerd culture. I would push back on that. I would say that it is intentional, right? That like you as Standard and Nebula and all of the people who help make it have you know, a perspective on the world and you, you know, you're bringing in certain people who are telling stories in certain ways, right? Like we all make choices about who we work with and how we work with them, right? 
No, it starts with, like, I just like comic book movies and science, and I think that human rights are a good thing. And then we bring in some creators who lightly fit into that stuff. And then over time, they invite their friends and the pie kind of bakes itself uh, to a certain extent. So it's, it's we never set out consciously to do it. When I say we, I mean, uh, mostly me, I suppose. At some point, I'm a curator of something more than I am a creator of something. And the the community itself, the, this collection of creators, I, I'm not here to um, go out and find those people. I don't, at this point, the only way we bring creators in is through referral. When other creators say, hey, I found somebody that I think you would really enjoy or that I think would be a good fit on the platform. It was never an ideological thing at my level. It just sort of grew out of what the community wanted. And I'm fine with it. I enjoy it. I feel like you should reframe that narrative and be like, yeah, man, I'm just like super hardcore social justice. <laughs> <laughs> we had a creator, a, a YouTuber uh, who made a video. The channel is called Second Thought. He does. He makes flat out like socialist propaganda videos and he openly admits it. And I mean, they're, they're well made. You know. Uh, but he made a video about making videos and the, the spawn, I won't name the sponsor, but the sponsor provides content for videos. And so he made a video about making videos, but to, to like, you know, a joke for his audience, he titled it how to make communist propaganda. Nice. And they terminated the relationship and it, it exploded in a huge <laughs> oh, way. Shit. The sponsor was super <laughs> not happy. I'm like, did you watch the video? It's just about making videos. The, the title's a joke. Yeah. Like, we don't care. This isn't okay. If we're, if we're ever going to sponsor anything, we have to see the video and we have to know the title before it's going to publish. I'm like, we can't do that. So I pulled away. Yeah. You know, and look, I... So so a couple of things that, that I've just been thinking about when you're like, let's talk about being a creator. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't know what to say. Is that like, I've never felt like a YouTuber, right? I've never felt like in a part of this community because I would look at people who are like, oh, and then this YouTuber came on my show and then I engage with these comments and I do responses to these people. And like, there's just a whole like beautiful community that flourishes around there. And, you know, even at conventions and stuff that I would go to because my videos were of such a moment in history of my own history, mm. because of all of the attention I was getting, I actually took out all of my personality, right? I was like, oh God, this is actually going to be really hard to get folks to understand what I'm trying to say. And these like, you know, fairly radical concepts that I'm trying to distill down into like mainstream language to get folks on board. And so I was just like, this is the script and you stick to the script and there are no jokes and there's no personality. And I'm <laughs> literally just presenting information to try and get the most people on board that I can. As flavorless as possible. Yeah. Right. And I look back at those videos. I like I, I recently did a 10 year retrospective and I was like, wow, these are really dry. <laughs> You know, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. And I understand why I was there, but it's nice to be able to feel a little more human and have a little bit more personality in my work now and and what I do. But at the time, it just I I would get included in these groups, but I never felt included in these groups. And that wasn't because they were not including me. It was because I was so scared of everyone and everything at that time that I didn't plug in in the ways. And so I think there's something about both, you know, in the creator, you know, you're talking about creator economy, but there's also like community is such a huge piece of that and a huge part of that. Right. And that can go many different ways. Well, that's part of it is that this is maybe, and I don't think it's the entirety of it, but I think part of why you don't feel, you, you don't classify yourself that way 
One might be because you got here early enough that you see it differently. But part of it is there isn't a single community. It's it's massive network of communities, which is a part of what I think makes the platform and the I mean, I beat the drum of I don't like the term creator economy, but it's the only term we have. <laughs> but that, that's kind of what makes it interesting is all of these pocket universes that sort of existed in our heads before we can go out and find communities now. That's mostly a good thing. There's of course, uh, that can lead to things like uh, insurrections on January 6th. But for the most part, it's people getting to find each other and, and form these communities. It doesn't all have to be one thing. But I do think that part of it for you might just be that you were early enough to this game that watching it evolve is a different experience for you than it is for uh, a high school or college kid who grew up with that kind of stuff. Yeah, man, I would go to schools and speak at colleges and the students would be like, I want to do what you're doing. How do I do that? And I was like, yo, you got to find whatever the next big thing is, because like it's real hard to get into this space now. Right. Like as soon as something becomes highly saturated, it's easier to be one of the first ones in a space generally. Right. Because there's not there's not as much going on. And so you see that even with like early TikTokers, which is like probably one of the newest things that we have at the moment. But yeah. The other thing about all of this that I think is critical is that we are based, well, we uh, creators are basing their careers on capitalist systems that are constantly changing, <laughs> you know, like I remember the, so I never, I didn't used to ever do ads on YouTube and we funded tropes through crowdfunding and I formed a nonprofit and through donations and that sort of thing. So we never had ads. We never had sponsorship, nothing like that. So when YouTube shifted their, advertising model, it like crashed the careers of people who are actually like living off of making these videos. And that's not that is such an uncontrollable aspect of this new, you know, the new creator economy, if we're going to use that word, that the the shifting tides of how finance is coming in sponsorships, like the ethics around all of that, it is both similar to traditional media in a lot of ways, and also just like a lot rockier. Does that make sense? Yeah. As I look around, I don't see a lot of adults in the room. And I don't mean that in a, a condescending way or uh, certainly not in like I'm an old guy shaking my fist at the cloud sort of way. But it's an entire industry populated with people who don't have much experience in any industry. A lot of the creators who are doing well on the platform are in their early to mid 20s and they've never had a real job before and their entire worldview is through the lens of YouTube culture. Yeah, and and that's fine, right? Like, you know, they are growing up in a world that's very different than the world we grew up in, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I was the last generation that like didn't have cell phones growing up. So we <laughs> we we learned and came into this space very differently. Yes. Than someone who like was just like, oh, YouTube was a part of my childhood or, you know, like my adolescence. And so, yeah, I'm just going to start making videos and see what happens. And then like a career flourishes and like, that's cool. Like, good for you. Great. I think what's interesting here is is how capitalism interweaves with this system, right? That early, early days of the Internet, there was this whole utopian, you know, the techno utopian ideal of we're going to democratize the internet and everybody is going to be equal and blah, 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 which was never the case. That's a lovely thought. Yeah, it was never the case. And it was mostly cis white dudes who were saying that. But what happened is that when it became clear that the internet was monetizable, then corporations started coming in and just like not being creative, <laughs> you know, they're just like, we're going to do the exact same things we were doing before, except on this new platform. 
right? And so I think that the creators, especially the young creators who are coming in to this space are just getting pushed into uh, these finance models that are really like, you know, we get emails every other day from every platform we've ever signed up for about their terms of service changing. Like, do you ever read those? I don't. You don't. Nobody hmm. reads those. No, nobody reads those. But like, what is the impact of that? Right. What if one day those things say like we own all of your content? I hate the word content. I'm not going to say that every time I say it, but I just need to preface that. No, I get you. But we own all of your art and material and work. Or what if it's like we're cutting all of the funding in half or you can't do sponsorships except with a limited amount of companies that we vet. Right. Like there's so much variable in building a career in this space. And I think I don't want to remove streamers from this because that is also a space that's very similar to what we're talking about, where people have their entire careers based on both audience and platform. And when your platform isn't taking care of you, right, when it isn't working to your best interest, which none of them really are because they're here to make money. Like, what does that mean for the longevity of your career? What does that mean for the sustainability of your career? I used to think of YouTube as like the evil empire, right? I mean, they're Google. As time has gone by and we've gotten to know some of the people who run different parts of the platform, the team behind Content ID uh, we're very friendly with, the team behind the algorithm we're very friendly with. You would expect that Nebula is some sort of competitor. Neither we or YouTube see it that way. We're actually very friendly. They, they love stuff we do. We, of course, love stuff that they do. Getting to meet the humans behind the things and, and hearing the rationale, here's why we made this change in the algorithm. I can't speak to the corporation. It is not a person. It's going to do the thing that it does. It's, it's a Ouija board. But makes me feel a little bit better knowing that some of the people with their hands on the, the Ouija board thingy, those are people who genuinely do care about the creator experience. And for the most part, whenever I'll, I'll just use YouTube as the example, actually, I'll use Patreon as an example. When they've made changes that would negatively impact creators, the creators kind of rise up. They'll throw a tantrum very, very publicly. And on multiple occasions now, they've gotten Patreon to, to reverse course. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Patreon has built their platform as a grassroots platform. And so the energy of Patreon and the energy of the way it's run and the culture that exists allows space for creators to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> this isn't okay. Whereas the energy and the platform of YouTube is not that, right? It is a lot harder to do that. But it, it, it does happen though. Yeah, for sure. It, it totally does. I think the line is blurrier. Patreon's VC backed. I do think that just in terms of the way the like, you know, every company has its way of its tone, right? Its brand, its way of speaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Patreon brand, it, well, that's what I mean. The Patreon brand is a lot more like, we're here for you, man. Like, this is cool. Let's go get a beer, you know? <laughs> like, there, it's like, it's a lot chiller. And so I think it is a little bit easier for creators to get sucked into that energy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I hear what you're saying about the humans behind the platform. And I think that we are coming at this from very different perspectives because of our experiences. So for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I've spent years giving free labor to all of these fucking platforms, <laughs> like all the social media platforms. <laughs> like I've gone into YouTube with decks being like, here are all of your problems. Here are all of the examples. Here are things that like aren't working or here's how like our experiences are as people who are more vulnerable on these platforms. And, you know, Twitter, Facebook, like all of them. I've been in all I've been in those rooms constantly. There are lovely people 
who want to do very well. Yes. And they want to do good things and they care about us. And it doesn't fucking matter. And it doesn't <laughs> fucking matter because they will burn themselves out to get the smallest iota, like the just teeniest, tiniest little thing for us. And then they leave <laughs> because they can't stand working there anymore because they're not getting anywhere. Right. And then you lose that person and then someone else comes in and then you start from the beginning again. And it's just it's the cycle. Right. There is a wall. There's like a, a ceiling that you hit with all of these platforms. That is the tension between like corporate interests, which are financial mostly and shareholder interests. Right. And legal right? It's it's constantly legal and PR that we're bumping up against in terms of what can and can't be done. And so while I think it's important to remember that there are humans behind it and that there are lovely people who care deeply, there are constantly walls that you're hitting in terms of trying to create these spaces. And in my decade plus of doing this work, I have just kind of come to the conclusion that like these platforms are foundationally flawed. They started on a foundation of not recognizing, considering or understanding that their platforms can cause extreme harm and that they were built in a way to do that. And now they're trying to put Band-Aids on it. And you know, this is my cynical. I mean, I think I'm allowed to be cynical at this point, but this is my cynical take on it. And so when new platforms start up, <laughs> you've earned it. <laughs> I know I definitely have earned it. When new platforms start up, I'm always like, well, what are you doing? Like, why is this not baked in from the beginning? How have you not seen what's been happening this whole time? Because you have an opportunity to do this different. You have an opportunity to do this in a way that is so much more caring for your users, for all of your users, you know? I feel like it's almost silly for me to disagree with you here because it's such a great like, yeah, we do that. Aren't we great? Aren't we different? I worry, though, that we're a product of YouTube in a sense. The systems that exist allowed these creators to flourish to some level or another, and they became successful enough to build up enough of an audience that some of that audience would come over and pay hard earned money to sign up for our service. It's hard to, to rage against that machine too much because there are valuable and useful parts of the machine. Do you think that the machine itself is unsalvageable and just needs to be torn down and rebuilt or replaced? Or do you think that there's work that can be done to take these platforms and steer them in the right direction? I'm like, what do I want to say publicly? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they are unsalvageable at this point, but I caveat that with they are what we have. So while we have them, they still need to do all of the work to try and create better, safer platforms, right? And we are kind of talking about two different things a little bit that are not unrelated, right? Is how do people get paid for their labor, right? And what does that mean on these platforms? And how do people do their work safely, right? Those are not disconnected because, you know, for example, when I was running Tropes, I had to turn all my comments off. I had to turn the the likes and dislikes off. There was a thing on the front page that was like related creators, that would auto-populate and it would all be people who are harassing me. So I was providing free advertising for them. Ugh. And if I turn that off, I don't get to be in the system anymore, right? There's all these little algorithmic things that happen that punish us for trying to protect ourselves, right? And this isn't, I wasn't even trying to monetize. I was just trying to make sure that my videos were getting as wide of a reach as possible. And so there are things that can be done. And I think that those things should be done. At the end of the day, like Twitter works really, Feminist Frequency is on their like security council thing. Hmm. They are really doing some work behind the scenes to try and make that platform better. But at the end of the day, it is a platform that is about to be owned by Elon Musk. Oh, my God. 
It is a a dog piling platform. It's literally baked into how we communicate on Twitter, you know, like, so there's only so much that you can do. And like, they're trying to do it. But like, if we talk about foundationally, like, yeah, it's Band-Aids on a geyser. Yeah. I always feel very challenged talking about this because I'm like, yeah, burn it all down. But in the same way that I feel like we should burn capitalism down, you know, like we're in it. We can't just like we need to figure out the transition plan out of it. Right. And and where the vision is to go towards it, as opposed to just being like, well, now we're going to tear it all down and then there's going to be nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite questions that we get or creators get about Nebula is, is this some kind of co-op? And it's like, how do we explain this? The answer is no, but kind of, but definitely not. But yes, (laughs) we're like, we are an LLC. We are we are a capitalist enterprise. We exist to make money. The way in which we make money is by providing services to creators that help them make money. And our all of our contracts, all of our relationships are set up to where unless the creators are making money, there's no way for us to make money. And that's, that's true. Like there's, we, we have no mechanisms to bring in money unless we're adding value. And that might be one of the best ways to do it within the constraints of the system, right? What I don't understand is what is the alternative? And I realize I'm opening a giant fucking can of worms with this. And I we don't need to go all the way down that rabbit hole. But it's not that I'm doing or that we are doing anything we're doing because we dream of of a more something, something future. I do really think that it is working within the constraints, but it's maybe I'm so far in it that I don't see outside those constraints the same way maybe some others do. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I don't think we have time to get into alternative models of <laughs> alternative economic models right now. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let second thought and his socialism videos take care of that. Yeah, I was like, this is not just a capitalism versus communism argument. Please don't ever put me in that <laughs> camp. But you know, in that like that dichotomy. But I think that we suffer collectively from a lack of vision for the future. I think I just admitted that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we're we're getting out of that, though. Like, you know, since Trump got elected, people are using the word white supremacy. <laughs> and You're like, what? Yeah. Back in the day, we would we would use it in activist circles, but we would never say it in mainstream spaces because that would be like a terrifying thing and everyone would shut down. Right. And that is thanks to all of the like racial justice activists that have been doing enormous work around that and seeing the rise of these movements. And we've seen so much progressive shifting in terms of like activist and popular identification with social justice causes. Uh, So we are seeing a shift and we are asking people to envision better worlds. We are talking about mental health. We are talking about four day work weeks. We are talking about ways that we can like kind of start poking holes at these systems. So I think some of it is happening. I think we're just still limited in the, you know, it's the same way we talk about electoral politics in America. It's like, well, you got to vote for the Democrat because they're better than the Republican. But like, right, right. By what margin, (laughs) you know, like it's still not good. Like, how do we think way beyond that scale? And so I guess if I'm offering anything, it's like, let's like, let's dream bigger here. Right. And I realize I'm saying this to you who runs (laughs) a platform within this system and that I've benefited from. Right. But that's part of the issue is like there's you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. We still have to make rent and pay our bills. And like we have to figure out how to do that in ways that are sustainable um, and that do the least amount of harm as possible. And that's another piece of all of this is like our economy is tanking right now. And so we're seeing it in my nonprofit in terms of like 
individual funding is is really down. And so what does that mean for people who exist on crowdfunding, who exist on sponsorships that are based on views? Like, I'm sure a lot of creators are hurting right now. You know, like Patreon, people have to take, have to stop contributing to folks' Patreons or other subscription services because they can't pay their bills, you know? I can't speak to Patreon. I can speak to the sponsorship side of this. A couple of pieces of good news. One, the vast majority of sponsorships are not based on views. They're based on conversions. Two, I am very not worried right now. The best model we've seen for any kind of economic collapse in recent history was the beginning of COVID. And there was a brief moment at the beginning of COVID where a couple of sponsors were like, let's pause spend and figure a couple of things out. And you know the, the market tanked for a minute and there was a very slow period where things just kind of sat down there at the bottom. And the sponsors realized that all of that money they were dumping into like Facebook ads or, or traditional media marketing was not nearly as effective dollar for dollar as influencer spend. And so they overcorrected and started spending like crazy on sponsorships. Mm. Creators made more money, at least the creators we work with, made a lot more money through sponsorships during the, the economic collapse moments of COVID all throughout COVID. Not not this is like, yay, COVID, we all made money, but like it didn't hurt in the way that you would predict. Yeah, yeah. Right? If I had been a betting man at the beginning of COVID and I had a billion dollars to throw at something, my bets would have been on online marketing and video streaming, which, you know, fortunately, those happen to be the businesses I'm in. And watching <laughs> things play out, it was it was really interesting to see like everyone who's now unemployed is at home looking for things to watch. And people don't shop in real life anymore. They only shop online. And there's a weird thing that happens with these parasocial relationships. There's a bunch of weird things that happen. But one of them is the fans who can afford to support creators in times of economic crisis spend more. They will do more to support their favorite creators. So interesting thing that I noticed, kind of anecdotally, but is that during 2020, fundraising was up. Mm -hmm. Because the people who, I would say at least the folks who have tech jobs. I work in video games. So people who are employed in tech and video game companies, they were still making the same salary that they've been making. And they had so much money to spend because they weren't doing anything. And so fundraising was really up in 2020. And there was also all the outrage. There was a lot of like energy. There's, you know, yeah. in like trying to whatever. As soon as vaccines happened and people started like lockdown ended and people started going out a little bit more, you saw that drop a little bit. And then now with the economy and the prices of everything skyrocketing, like people are really tightening their belts. And so I can't speak to the sponsorship side of things, but in terms of individual giving, like the people who can give $5 a month or whatever, are like, man, that $5 would be really helpful towards my groceries because my groceries have just doubled, you know, that sort of thing. And so I think while I hear what you're saying and I, I don't disagree with it, and obviously I have no point of reference for that, I think that this moment is slightly different in terms of the actual cost of things are going up and that's hurting people, even people who are who make a little bit more money and had larger charitable giving budgets and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think the, there may be a split here, too, where the sort of person who attaches to the creators that we work with might not be perfectly representative of the larger market. Mm. Demographically, a lot of our creators, their audience are 20-something affluent, work in relatively safe and stable industries. So 
they tend to have a lot more disposable income. It's why sponsors like that audience. Yeah. So it might be that the groups may, <laughs> here's a revolutionary idea. Maybe not all economic groups are affected by economic downturn in the same way. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. Groundbreaking. You're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of problem we solve on this show. I think that there are good things and, and bad things about the ways in which creators can do business. And there are good things and bad things about the relationship that, that creators have with their audience, at least for the kinds of creators we work with. They are often seen by the audience as being important, not just entertaining. Nobody is like re-upping Netflix because they want to contribute more money to the Stranger Things kids. That is an entertainment vessel. What we do is more... I don't know, liberal, artsy, uh, STEM-y, uh, poli-sci. And there's a, a value, an educational value that our users, our audience, ascribe to that, that that is a little bit different. And so we may be disproportionately benefiting from that in ways that may be a privilege that we don't have a system really to, to have thought too hard about. Yeah. And you know what? The, like these creators are so fucking smart and they just like have such such there's such good storytellers and both in terms of visual style but also in terms of like how they tell these stories and the connections that they make and you feel smarter <laughs> it's just being around them and listening to them you know you're like cool you know I've, I've never liked Sherlock and now I have like even more ammo about why I don't like Sherlock right? <laughs> like it's very yeah, satisfying yeah. right you know so yeah I think that feels resonant at least in my experience too of where you're like I'm not just entertained. I feel like I've like learned something and I feel like a better person mm -hmm. in the world because now I know this thing that I didn't know before. Enriched in some way. Enriched. Thank you. That's the word. Yeah. One would hope. And I mean, I can hand wave all day about why we do what we do. But like the bottom line is as a capitalist enterprise, we make money if the creators make money. So like my job is to make sure some motherfuckers get paid. And the, the people we choose, the, the community that, that we choose is like extensions of the things we care about, not so much ideology, but like, uh, I guess at a certain point it becomes that, but as we were talking about earlier, but uh, in my mind, it is, it is a function of what is the story we tell about all of us. And so this takes me to, there are pieces of content that exist on Nebula, uh, there's that word, that are exclusive to the platform. There are Nebula originals, there's Nebula plot, there's a handful of things that we do that are exclusive to Nebula. And there's one coming out in, uh, depending on when you're listening to this episode, either a couple of days or a week or so, on, was it October 20th? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the first episode drops of your new show, That Time When. My new show. <laughs> yeah, look at that. We're going, we're going for the plug. Well, I want to talk about this because I, I think it's such an interesting example of kind of the push and pull market force dynamics that make all of this stuff work. And in my mind, kind of representative of I see this untapped potential of people who have had bad experiences on the Internet, maybe I don't want to say creating a safer home. That that feels either smug or it just feels wrong. I mean, you just said it, though. <laughs> yeah. Even when you do something ironically, you're still doing it. Mm, I, get, I get what you mean, though. Yeah. 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 We don't have comments. We don't want comments. We'll pass on comments. No, thank you. There are systems, as you pointed out earlier, on these other platforms that encourage a certain kind of behavior or at least don't discourage a certain kind of behavior. What is it for you that makes a show like this interesting to do now and why why would it work here and not on youtube huh. i don't know if it wouldn't work on youtube and this isn't in any way discounting nebula i mm. think that the benefit for me of being on nebula is the support i get 
right? Is that if I made a video on YouTube, I would just have to figure out how to do it myself and market it myself. And it's me solo doing this thing. Whereas when you're like, hey, you want to make something for us? And I'm like, yeah, I have this whole baked in system and community that I can tap into both in terms of your production teams and all of that, but also like being a part of Nebula and the people on Nebula, right? And like the other creators in this space. And so Yeah, there is some of that on YouTube, but I'm not really plugged into it, right? And so I think for me, being here is about trying something new. It's about plugging into community more. And it's about having people have my back, you know? Mm. If something goes awry, I'm not just like, oh, fuck, what do I do now? Which, I mean, granted, (laughs) I know what to do because I've been dealing with this forever. But it really is like, hey, I can just hit up you and your team and be like, man, I'm feeling really weird about this thing. Can we talk about it? And like you're invested in taking care of and being a part of that conversation and like solving the problem with me. And one of the things that I realized in my work as a creator of the past is Like it was really alienating and isolating to try and figure everything out with just me and like one other person. And I didn't trust anyone. And I was scared of everyone uh, because everyone lurking around could be potentially harmful to me. And so as my own personal growth has been like, I love working with other people. Like I like being in community. I'm, I'm my most creative and my most engaged when I'm with other people. And so that is that's a huge benefit for me in terms of being a part of Nebula and releasing this with y'all. It's funny. I I also believe that this as a as a series would work on YouTube. Who knows how many views it would get or or whatever. I don't think any of us produced this in a way that is designed to like generate more algorithmic views. That's not how the platform works. That's not what we've optimized for. There's certainly a version of the show that would that would be a total banger on YouTube. No doubt in my mind. But if I had to guess, when I when I look at, I don't know if I can talk. There's another creator in a, with with some similar history who's going to be doing another thing with us after having sort of left the the YouTube sphere not too long ago. Who's going to be doing a, a Nebula original? I think this month. When I look at the the timing and the similarities between these stories, part of the assumption that I make, and I recognize this is an assumption coming from you know my position where I'm sitting, but it seems like part of the attraction is the sense that doing things on YouTube means that you're speaking up in a room where the room itself, not just the people in the room, but the room itself is not supportive if things go wrong. It's like a room without a fire exit. Yeah. And it's not that we have provided a, a uh, more audience or we brought you an audience you couldn't get on your own. Even if it's literally the same group, I think that what makes it interesting is the idea that there is an exit. This is a concert. The venue has provided security to some level. Yeah, that's a good analogy, I think. Not even necessarily that we've done anything. I'm certainly not trying to take credit for something, but it more like if you feel like you have any support at all, that can make all the difference and make it, I would hope, worth trying to do things that you might not otherwise do. Yeah, I, you know, and I think another piece of this is there is very real outrage fatigue. I'll, I will get, mm. this will connect in a minute. <laughs> There's very real outrage fatigue, right? And where like, you know, kind of just retweeting and reposting and whatever, like people been getting kind of tired of doing that. It's really hard to get your thing through those barriers. There's an analogy that everybody knows that I can't think of right now. But getting through all of that noise is extremely hard and we're all trying to do it, right? And what is the thing that we can do that will get through that and get people sharing? And what I've seen is that people are taking stuff into private groups, 
right? That they're sharing stuff and having conversations in smaller group chats, in private group chats, um, in discords. Mm. And I think Nebula kind of acts a little bit like that in a way that is comforting, right? Where it's like, we're here talking about this thing together, right? These are the people that I trust and care about. I mean, I'm not saying that I trust everyone on Nebula, but I think it has some of those (laughs) same vibes of like smaller communities are easier to manage. They're easier to create norms around that everyone can kind of buy into. And the outliers that might be causing problems are easier to talk to or to make choices about whether they should continue to be a part of the community. I'm not saying Nebula is that, but I'm saying there is a kind of energy around that. It is a paywalled platform that has a particular group of creators and a particular audience that's a a part of this space. And I'm going into this being like, and it's really weird for me, but I'm going into this being like, yeah, I feel like most people are going to be down with this. You know, like, I think that like, you know, I don't know, you know, I have no idea how folks are going to react, but I'm not going into it like, oh my God, I'm terrified. (laughs) What if this is the worst thing ever? I'm going into it being like, I think that some of the people on this platform are going to be like, oh, dope. And he's just making a new video series. Like, what's that about? And like, go into it, giving me the benefit of the doubt. Right. Whereas if I put this on YouTube, I would be a lot more anxious and I would anticipate a lot more like whatever the opposite of giving me the benefit of the doubt is a lot more like, (laughs) oh, what's what is this like and trying to pick it apart and all that. It's all done in bad faith. Yeah. And I would have written it differently. I co-wrote it, but I would have I would have approached this differently on YouTube than I would be on Nebula. On Nebula, I got to be like, I don't need to make every single counter argument that's ever been thought of <laughs> to try and like get through. Right. I get to just be like, here's this dope story. Like, did you know about this weird thing from the past? Because I didn't. And I think it's really cool. Like, let me share that with you. How much of the show is written in a vacuum and how much of it is informed by your experiences like the the topics themselves on paper i wouldn't necessarily if you just showed me this list i wouldn't immediately think your name yeah no this is very different the way these things are presented i mean there's there's connective tissue it's it's impossible to uh, i think not have that but for you what was what was the approach like yeah um you know i'm more than just video games <laughs> uh, you know, like there's a there's a little bit of that energy. But when we started working on this, I was like, oh, man, this is so dumb. Like, nobody's going to like this. Like, I just everyone's going to think I'm just like super basic because like videos these days are like two hours and they're super intricate. And like, I'm like, man, I don't even know if I can think that way anymore, <laughs> you know. And I, I had to take a step back and be like, there's still room and space for these little 10 minute, like, here's a, here's a nugget for you, right? Like, here's a fun little thing, like factoid that you didn't know. Like, I think there's still room for the 10 minute (laughs) video. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) My politics have always been a part of my work. And even though they were like hyper-focused in one area, it didn't mean that I wasn't still pulling from this huge orbit of like systemic cultural historical understanding. And so to me, this doesn't feel weird. This is just stuff that I've always been interested and care about. It just might be a little bit different than what's expected of me. But like it is deeply rooted in social justice values and it's taking a look at, like I'm really fascinated by, I've always been interested in in history and how we constantly forget it and how we re like our cycles just happen over and over and over again. And as we were putting this together, you know, like I was like, here, 
So actually, we haven't even said what the show's about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we should explain ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The show (laughs) is called That Time When, and it's about moments in history, in modern history, when pop culture and politics collide. Such a great pitch. As I put this list together, and I was like, remember that time that the vice president, Dan Quayle, got really mad at Murphy Brown, who's a fictional TV character? Like, that's weird, (laughs) right? Like, that, like the fact that a fictional television character became a talking point in a presidential campaign is just fucking bonkers. Or like what really happened around Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction, right? Like what what actually was going on during that moment and what were the consequences of that? There's nine episodes. We go through all these different topics. Some are way back in like silent era filmmaking and all up until like, you know, Gamergate, we, I definitely, you know, I had to, I had to unpack that one a little bit. Does that feel good? Or was that a, was that like a, a, a bandaid situation? Let me come back to that one. <laughs> that question. I made this list of potential topics that we could talk about. And I roped in Carolyn Pettit, who longtime um, fans of mine will know as just a beautiful, amazing writer. And what we uncovered is that throughout so many of these stories, it's all it like the interweaving thread is really like conservative reactionary politics. And I, I wasn't even thinking about that when I put the list together, but it really is just like deep puritanical regressive ways of controlling uh, marginalized bodies is throughout this whole series and how I think that that's really important. And so we have an episode where we talk about cancel culture and what that means and what does it mean when someone is actually canceled and not just the sort of ways that Republicans have been manipulating that word. And what is the precursor to that? Because this isn't the first time that's happened, right? So as this took form, I realized that there really is this through thread around the whole thing that is very much in line with everything that I've been like in my adult career been talking about and thinking about is like, how are we reacting to and pushing up against and dealing with reactionary conservative politics. And it just happens again and again and again. So anyways, that's my pitch about why I think this series is really cool. (laughs) Your question about talking about Gamergate. So (sighs) you'd think you'd be done with it. You'd think that like you would just be so annoyed. Dave, I'm so done with it. Let me tell you, I get emails every week asking me to be in documentaries and stuff talking about Gamergate. And I'm just like, no, I can't do it anymore. Like I just... I've done the dog and pony show. I go up on stage and I talk about all of the horrible things that have happened to me. And I'm like, no. And so while my my work is still very, you know, I run Feminist Frequency, which is a nonprofit that works to end abuse in the games industry. We have the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. Like online harassment is still very much a part of the work that I do. But I don't need to like expose my trauma for everybody anymore. You know, like that's mm-hmm. where I'm at mm-hmm. with this is like, I can talk about this stuff systemically. And if you want to know what happened to me, there's Google. Like it's, I've talked about this to the ends of the earth. Right. I just, I'm kind of done with it. This is why I was surprised it was even on the list. Like one of the, Our note to you was, what do you want to make? But how could it not be? How could it not be? Because when we're talking about moments in history, yeah. when pop culture and politics collide, yeah. we're talking about one, Gamergate itself would be would fall under this category. But the fact that it led that like the Republican strategists took the strategies of this hate movement and used it to win an election, like how can you not? <laughs> like, how can I not? Right. And so for me, it was the hardest episode to record. Like I remember being on set and being like, okay, when are we going to do this one? Because it's like, I don't want to. Like, I just, I literally don't want to record this. And 
you know, for people who do production, like you have to record it over and over and over again. Right. I'm like, I don't mm -hmm. want to mm -hmm. sit with this. And then in the editing, I was like, I don't want to watch this again and again. Like it, I really was having a physical reaction to it. But I also was like, it is really important. Like I have never talked about Gamergate this clearly before. I've never actually just laid out like, here's the history, here's what happened, and here's where it led to. And like, it's an 18-minute video. It's not like the most in-depth thing ever, but I think there's something really valuable about me saying it. Because other people have talked about some of these things from more outsider perspectives, but like... In the video, I talk about how like this is personal, right? This is not just another historical event that happened. This is a thing that happened to me. And here is my perspective on it years out, right? With the clarity of distance from it. So I felt like even though it was hard for me to do it, I felt like it was really important to do it. Do you feel like you got it out of your system? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever get out of my system, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's, I don't know if anyone's ever going to uh, erase that from your Wikipedia page. No, and they shouldn't, right? It's part of the history. But, but you know, doing things like this, like I'm, I'm getting into filmmaking and I really want to do more narrative storytelling. I feel a really big drive to be known for something else right now, <laughs> you know? This is exactly where I was going with this. This is exactly where I was going with this. When you, so the Wikipedia thing, like, yes, these things happen. What is it that you, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, what do you want people to think of when they hear your name? What do you want to be attached to, if not this? That's a hard thing to say because like, look, okay, this is, I'm going to be so not humble right now. Oh, I'm here for it. Recognize that it feels weird to say this. Tropes. And the work I did around tropes and all of the advocacy about ending harassment, like that changed an industry. Like my work changed an industry and it changed the cultural conversation. And it wasn't just me. There were other people that were doing work around all this, of course. But like it would be hard to argue that my work wasn't like seminal and wasn't instrumental in this. I would argue that your work is foundational to what we do. Yes. In many ways. So many of our creators were inspired by you or are walking on a trail that you helped to blaze. Yeah. And, and, you know, it like, yes, <laughs> you know, part of me is like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But really like, I'm, I'm so no, I'm distanced it. enough from it that I'm like, this is true. Like, it's just fucking true. Right. Like I was a pioneer in this space, both in terms of like the ways that we talk about like representation and also in actually the, the medium itself. Right. I've been learning to own that. And so in learning to own that, I'm like, nothing is going to top it. Like I fucking peaked, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> this was huge. And like, how cool is it that I have that? Right. The problem for me is that it comes with so much trauma. It comes with so like it's it's messy and it's painful for me. And so the fact that I am known for a thing that feels bad is hard. Hmm. I'm going to go on and I'm going to make cool shit and I'm going to make movies and I'm going <laughs> to make more videos and I'm going to like, and all of the work I'm doing with my nonprofit, like it's all great work. It's likely never going to top what I've already done. And that's a really weird place to be, you know? And so for me, I think a little bit like I want to make new things that I feel like I own more, hmm. right? That I haven't lost control of in some ways. And I think maybe that's my perspective on how I do work now, you know, in deep collaboration and creative collaborations, but also just like, I want to feel more ownership of the things that I do and feel more proud. It's weird to say I don't feel proud of tropes because of course I do, but there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that makes it harder for me to reckon with 
the historical context of what the impact that I had. Does that make sense? Kind of? Yeah, absolutely. I know I'm being a little vague, but <laughs> no, no, I, I get it. There's only so much you <laughs> want to share about certain things. Yeah, we don't need to go into all of it. But we, we talked uh, earlier, we sort of kicked the conversation off around the idea of how creators make money and the way people approach the economics of the, the, the platforms. I'll stick to YouTube because it's the one I know. But when I when I look across the landscape today, I recognize I I live at the beating heart of survivor bias within this genre. And I am fairly well connected within the machine itself. What do you mean by survivor bias? I'm surrounded by creators who made it. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, I understand. I represent a hundred and sixty or so YouTubers who make money doing this. Yeah. And so I don't know what percentage of people who try end up succeeding. What I can say is that I'm very encouraged by when I see somebody who who is demonstrating talent. I, I can't think of a time where I've seen a talented person not make it on YouTube without me being able to point out why. And I recognize that a lot of that is like, I don't know, the privilege of understanding to whatever degree the the algorithms and the mechanisms that make success possible on the platform. I am encouraged by the fact that a middle class of creator is possible. Mm. While I, I have no argument against the reasons why we should tear down capitalism, I am encouraged by the fact that so many of the creators we represent are able to make money doing this. One of the harder truths of a platform like YouTube, and, and there's this like cognitive dissonance that even I have, it can be hard to remember that without the, the evil algorithms, those views might not happen. No, nothing is owed to us. Mm. You self-host a, a, a blog and start posting videos there, you won't get the same kind of attention or you'd have to work way harder to get it. I mean, you, but like one wouldn't get the same sort of attention. I mean, look, I still have to work hard to get attention too. But I mean, it's not, people just assume that I have like this baked in <laughs> audience. It's just, it's not, it. that's not the way it works. Sort of in a similar position, we we benefit from our creators go out and tell their audience and then the audience comes over and that's that's our primary marketing mechanism. Yeah. The way we find new audience is the YouTube algorithm goes and does it for us. It's a weird place to be to think that even us, we directly benefit from that. The creators grow not because they have their stuff here, but because they have their stuff there. Mm, yeah. When you think about the things that you you want to make, let's assume for a second that the perspective, the, the place where I'm sitting, the view that I have has any basis in reality where this kind of content, this kind of video, this kind of project can make money now or it can get funding now in a way that maybe 10 years ago wouldn't have worked the same way or wouldn't have gotten the same kind of funding or wouldn't have gotten the same kind of attention. Does that change for you the way you think about the things that you want to make next? Yes. Yeah, it does for sure. One thing I, I would be remiss if I didn't share and I think is related to this is there was a moment in the first iteration of Feminist Frequency um, where I was like, you know, I'm just phoning it in <laughs> at this point. And I was looking around and all of these creators were popping up doing amazing work and really intricate, beautiful videos that were just brilliant. And I was like, it's time to like pass on the torch in some ways. Right. Like there, I definitely had this energy of like, I haven't kept up intellectually in the ways that I'm seeing these young people doing and like mm -hmm. coming in with all this new energy and all these new perspectives and all these new ways of telling stories. And I was like, cool. And this goes back to what we were talking about, where I was like, you know, I helped create this space and then recognizing when it was time to leave it. 
or to step back from it and be like, it opened a door for a whole new generation to do cool shit. And so I stopped. Like I just stopped making videos because I was like, I'm not, I'm not contributing anymore. And all these other people are doing great work. And so I don't feel like I'm just not contributing and that like I'm letting the conversation die. It's like, no, the conversation is skyrocketing over here. Like, let that be. And so I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't give so much credit to all these young folks who've come in and like behind me in some ways and like really taken it to a whole nother level that I think is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, like you say, young folks, like you're 70. Well, these whippersnappers. I'm definitely, you know, <laughs> definitely not in my <laughs> 20s, <laughs> you know, not even in my early 30s. <laughs> when I look at, uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of adults in the room, right? But a lot of the folks I work with, a lot of the creators I know who are very successful now started within the last five years. Yeah. And a lot of the creators I know who started 10 or more years ago, especially the, the the further back you go after 10 years, the more institutional success they have, but that doesn't always translate to monetary success. Creators may revere them and they may still have a reliable audience, but they don't have like, they're just not able to produce things that get the same kinds of attention and make the same kinds of money that some of the the, the newer folks, I almost said younger, well, also that. Yeah, and I think it's important too that I say, I'm saying younger folks, but really I mean the next generation and that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean that they're younger than me. It, most of them are, but it's the energy and, and this is sort of like intergenerational activism, right? It's the energy that comes from people new in a space right? That's different than those of us who are like tired and burnt out and exhausted, <laughs> you know, just to clarify, that's what I mean by those folks. And like mm -hmm. this industry has kind of formed and skyrocketed in the last five years, like you're saying, and also yeah, streamers, yeah. like Twitch streamers and gaming streamers like that, I'd say like ramped up during COVID, right? Even in the last two years in a, in a really big way. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, is the bottom going to drop out? Is this sustainable? Is this the future? Is like influencer culture here to stay? Like we don't know, but right now it's, you know, it's a reality for a lot of people. And it's a, it's a career that young people aspire to at this point, which is yeah. hilarious to me, <laughs> but, but you know, like that's, that's what it is. The folks that I see now who are able to, or who are more eager to adapt to algorithmic changes. The same things that you had pointed out as being frustrations or problems earlier on. For some folks, the folks who've grown up with YouTube, that is a feature. That is a, a part of like the, the ever-changing landscape is exciting for them. When you think about the things that you want to make and the, the fact that it is now possible to make money doing things that maybe it wasn't possible to make money doing a few years ago, is there any part of you that is do you feel refreshed in some way? Are you are you creatively reinvigorated or are you still sort of in this place where you're like, this kind of sucks and I got to I, I got to figure some other things out? I may be misrepresenting your sentiment there, but you, you understand the question. Yeah, well, I would say fundraising is fundraising and it always is the same thing. <laughs> like there was a part of me that was like, man, I'm really tired of, you know, I've never liked fundraising. It's a huge part of my job. And I and there was a part of me that was like, look, I'm tired of making these like videos on my own with, you know, just like, you know, nonprofit donations and stuff like that. And I want to start making films and I want to start doing bigger productions, right? Like that time when was a proper production with a proper production schedule. And like we made all the videos at once and then edited them all at once, which was very different than when it's not the first time I've done that, but it was very different than like tropes, which was like, there was no regular release schedule. We would like work on it for months and months and then release it the 
day after it was edited or like literally hours later, you know, like it was a real yeah, makeshift yeah. situation. Part of me was like, I want to get paid for my work. Like, I don't want to just cover the costs of my work or do like barely scrape by. I want to get paid for my work and I want enough money to do things with like proper production quality. And when I started doing that shift, I was like, yeah, and it's still fucking fundraising, right? Like you still got to network and you still got to find the people who will pay you to do that. And you got to convince them that you're worth taking a chance on and all of that. So to me, when I think about the money part of it is like, it's, it's not that different in a lot of ways. You still have to do the business of making these things happen. And, and I, I was thinking about that too, when you're talking about like people grow up on the algorithms and then they learn how to adapt and shift. And I think that you know, there are some creators and creative people who are very good at the business side of things, right? And they will mm -hmm. thrive yeah. at that. And they will, they know how to network and they know how to make connections and they know how to keep up to date with the algorithmic changes. They they can understand what kinds of thumbnails and, and titles and stuff that they need to get people hooked. And other people are brilliant creators that know nothing about business and really struggle with it and don't know how to do that. And they have really important things to say, but their expertise is not in that side of things. And so they get lost, right? They get kind of left behind or they don't get as much. And I think that applies to all creative work. I see this in video games all the time with like indie developers and like indie filmmakers and stuff where, where we're just like, we just want to like make the thing. <laughs> Why do we have to like do all of the other things too, right? And that's just a reality of this, the systems that we're in. Yeah. Making it is part of the story. You also have to get in from an audience. And if you're charging money, you have to convince them to pay money. Yeah. This is like eternally the, the art versus commerce battle here. Yeah. A hundred percent. Imagine how the flourishing creative beauty of the world would be if we were freed from the economic function of it. Like I look at things on the internet and you look at like, I don't know, TikToks or memes and you're just like, people are brilliant. <laughs> you know, like we like humans are just so brilliant and smart and draw all these connections. And I think about this back in the day before I even started Feminist Frequency was really in like the remix and vidding community and just looking at all of these like incredibly edited stories and videos with found footage and like, you know, using pre-existing footage. And they just made it for each other in their spare time, like after work, right? Like just incredibly talented folks. And so, you know, there's part of me that just like has so much like joy and hope for just how creative people are. And then there's the other part of me that's like, man, but we're so bogged down by the like paying of our bills and getting paid for our work and understanding the business side of things. And like, you know, this is another visioning, right? Is like how much could people flourish if they didn't have tied down with economic and trauma and all of the shit that we deal with every day, you know? Well, the good news is that automation and artificial intelligence are advancing at a pace that in the near future, it's very likely that they'll do all of the creative work for us so we can go to the labor. <laughs> I can't wait. You know, we're just going to be in the metaverse, like just <laughs> hanging out. And it's just going to be a great, great old time for everybody. Everyone will be happy forever. <laughs> It'll be great. Anita, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, this is exactly what I was hoping it would be. Yeah, you started off being like, let's be antagonistic. And I'm like, I'm really good at that. I can do that. <laughs> if I'm going to say something, I kind of want you to challenge me. I want to have yeah. to like defend the idea or back away from it. I've been thinking about how like with tropes, there wasn't really room to criticize my work hmm. because there was so much harassment. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of like really like smart criticisms that came through, but it was impossible to engage with any of it. And so really, for the most part, I didn't have that. And now there's a lot more room for it. And I'm like, 
I'm like, oh man, I'm like a critic who hasn't really dealt with a lot of criticism. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like both fear and crave being challenged right now. Like I'm in a very particular place in my life where I'm like, I want more challenges. I want more engagement because people do tend to just like defer to the person who speaks the most confidently about whatever bullshit they're spouting. Right. And while I do think I've earned a lot of that respect, I am like, I'm curious. Like there, there are things in these episodes that I'm like, wow, I would have phrased that differently if I could redo it. And I'm like, is, are people going to call me out on that? <laughs> you know, like what's going to come up? So I'm curious to see what the response is of this and, and how I react to criticism. And hopefully I can do that in a way that is kind and gentle, you know? Yeah. And hopefully without the toxicity that often comes with that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's the thing is like criticism makes things better, right? Like, I mean, I built my career on being a critic and I think that there are ways to have these conversations that are really supportive and respectful and kind, you know, and, and growing, right. And allow mm -hmm. people to do better and be better. And that's, that's what I hope for in, in all of these creator spaces is that we can lovingly challenge each other to be better. Yeah. The best of us are often forged in fire. I think it's it's necessary that we we hold each other accountable. We can be honest with one another. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. This is fantastic. I hope you all watch my show. Uh, well, the, the good news is uh, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Nebula. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that 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 hopefully moves the needle for everybody. I'm excited for people to find out that this is going to happen. I've told friends, or I've told people in the industry that we're doing this over the last year or so. And the response is always the same. 100% of the response is like, ooh, that's going to be interesting. Mm. <laughs> I like that sort of like, not like that's cool, but like, hmm, we'll see what happens. I, I like that energy. Always in a positive way of like, after everything that happened before and after a bit of time, where's this going to go? And I'll talk about mm. like, well, the premise is this. And people are like, oh, that like that's, it, there's almost like a relief that it's not the thing that they might have assumed it was going to be. Yeah. The Gamergate people, if you look hard enough at anything, you can find ways to criticize. But like, I just don't think this attracts that kind of, I don't know, discourse. No, I don't think so either. I think I think these are kind of fun. Genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, you know, they're they're relatively serious topics, but like they're fun and I make bad jokes and, uh, you know, <laughs> and I say bad jokes in that I deliver them badly. It's fine. I'm not an actor. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the majority of people are going to be like, oh, that was an interesting 10 minutes. You know, and I think they're going to look forward to the next one. Yeah, totally. So, yes, please watch my show. Let me know what you think. I'm on all the socials. You can hit me up. All right. Anita, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. This is fantastic. Looking forward to everybody seeing this. You too. Thanks. Thanks.